All right, we are live here on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. It's the Waiting for Next Year.com podcast. We are part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Uh, normally, we're talking about sports today. Um, sometimes, you know, when you make friends, they just happen to be PhDs in virology. Josh Yoder, how's it going, sir? Doing well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Yeah, I don't often bring my friends on. But then again, like, uh, my friends don't often have uh, perfectly germane knowledge of things that are going on in the world. Right. Um, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Um, I mean, first of all, we're, we're just friends because we have kids in the same grade. It mm -hmm. all just kind of happened. And then later on, I find out that you're this, you're this virology expert. Yeah, indeed. That's what, that's what we uh, let people think anyway. So, uh, a little bit of the reason they think that though is um, I, so I did undergraduate work in biochemistry, molecular biology, was interested in science and medicine, and as opposed to, you know, pursuing the route of getting an MD or things like that, I decided to stay in the research world and did a PhD in virology. Um, and actually part of my PhD program uh, project was developing vaccines. So um, I worked on a rotavirus vaccine and developed some things for that. Um, stayed in academia for, you know, including that time in grad school, probably about 15 years, just, you know, just discovering what viruses do, how do they infect cells, how, do they, how does the immune system interact with them. And uh, since then moved into a small biotech and then with some other bigger companies work more of in what we call medical affairs. And it's kind of going out and explaining science and medicine to people, getting feedback from doctors and bringing them back to the company. And um, a lot of that's been in vaccines and the company I'm supporting right now works in vaccines. So just a lot of background in kind of viruses, what they do and how we, uh, how we try to stop them. And specifically talking about them, teaching other people how to talk about them, education. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a big part of what I do and kind of a fun part of it for me. And now you haven't specifically worked in this field on this vaccine at this time, though. No, that's right. I've not been actively working on a coronavirus vaccine. But still. So uh, I that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about it, because a lot of what were a lot of... One of the most interesting things, first of all, to me is that, uh, you know, this is new vaccine technology. I, I'm not an expert. I don't, I, I barely know what I'm reading half the time, but I'm trying really hard. And, yep. you know, the whole messenger RNA thing mm -hmm. is t way different than what we think of as a vaccine introducing, you know, Absolutely. like a, a dead version of the disease or the virus. Yep. Indeed. So there's a number of different ways you can approach this. And, and like you mentioned, this mRNA vaccine, is brand new. There's never been a vaccine like this anywhere used in people for any disease. So it's brand new even to scientists. Um, you know, you'll talk to people that are scientists, that are doctors, and you know, that are maybe used to evaluating different forms of information and maybe educated in what's, you know, good and bad, but, but everything's new. And even as a virologist, you know, I had to read up a little bit more on this to make sure I'm, I'm kind of at the forefront of it. It's, it's, it's a new thing. Um, but you know, in that regard, too, you might even wonder, you know, people hear mRNA, well, what the heck does that mean? So, I mean, even even a little bit before that, you know, we all hear we have DNA, we have proteins, what are these things? So what these these newest vaccines, you know, we've we've heard, and I don't know if you saw today, that there's kind of a, a third vaccine that has some good data out on it now. And the first two we, we heard about were mRNA vaccines. So basically, you know, everybody hears our genetic code, right? DNA, that's what is, is in our body. We inherit it from our parents. It tells our body how to make what we need, right? So the little molecules that do all the work in our, in our body are proteins. And, you know, one specific form of them is enzymes. And those are the ones that are kind of active. So we all hear of proteins and enzymes and we eat these things and what do they do? But really they do all the functions in our body. So The DNA is kind of the instructions, 
the proteins are kind of the function and the mRNA is a little bit of a middleman there. So we have certain proteins, enzymes in our body to read that DNA, make mRNA. And then this mRNA can be read by different enzymes and proteins that can then, that then make a protein from those instructions. So they're kind of an instruction intermediary. They're not terribly stable. Um, they're, they're kind of meant to be transient. So it, these things will come up in a little bit of the discussion of the vaccines themselves, but just know that they're kind of a, a template, a middleman template that can then tell the, the protein your cells and, and the proteins in your cells how to make other proteins, basically. So obviously this, this messenger RNA thing has mm -hmm. been a, has been a theory for a long time. Absolutely. Why has it not been put in practice until now? Yeah, it's a, it's a really difficult technology to work with. Um, you know, in a little bit just of context of this whole thing, you know, just even thinking about having a vaccine anytime soon is, is mind blowing. Um, everybody almost expects it at this point, but if this was even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, this, a, a pandemic like this would have taken years and probably decades to solve. I mean, just the idea that we can even have a vaccine in, in months to, to a few years is incredibly mind blowing. From the time this thing emerged, it only took a few months to have the sequence of the virus, right? So if we didn't have the sequence and didn't have this technology now, we wouldn't even be able to think about an mRNA vaccine because we have to know the genetic code of that virus so we can know what mRNA to make to train our immune system. So basically what we're trying to do with any vaccine is train your immune system to see what's coming at it, right? So we want to give it a essentially a harmless version of what's going to come, come along later that could be harmful. So anytime you're going to have a, you know, a virus attacking you, it has certain structures on the outside of it. What this mRNA doing is basically giving it is teaching your body how to make a harmless version of the protein that your immune system can then recognize. So basically the mRNA itself, because it's not very stable. So even if you work in a lab on these things, they're very isolated. It's notoriously an unstable molecule. You can have very specialized conditions. It's very hard to work with. So that's one of the tricks of it. Um, we didn't really have a good basically method before to make these sort of things, to make them stable. And even now these two leading candidates that we've heard about that are, you know, 95% effective essentially in these, in these, you know, I want to say early trials, they are the furthest stages along that you need to get approval, but they're still, you know, it's not out in the population and all those sort of things. But the, the best data we have right now says they're about 95% effective. Um, they're still going to, there's still going to be a lot of challenges, right? So we still have to have specialized um, ways to handle these things, to transmit them out to all the people, the, all the logistics you can think of of getting something out to people. Um, all those kind of difficulties of working in the lab translate through all these other aspects. So um, even though we have these things, it's kind of not the end of the road yet, I guess. So the temperature thing, the, the Pfizer one, obviously uh -huh. has been talked about where it needs to be at a super cool temperature. Yeah. Um, is that because it's mRNA? MRNA. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. So it's just not a terribly stable thing. It's not like a protein that you can set out and just let sit in a fridge or at the you know room temperature for a long time. And they aren't so unstable that you can only have them out for hours. You know, some of these things can last for days or weeks in a fridge. But when you're thinking about you know transporting them over long distances to other countries, the things like that, um, obviously it becomes a, a a big factor. All right. So one of the other kind of simplistic questions that I had that I'm hoping so. <laughs> If it's it, part of the dosing on these things is, is it's two doses and yeah. then they come up with their efficacy. Does that mean that like it could be 45 or 52% uh, efficacious with the first dose and That's the second right. dose like pushes it over the top? Yeah. Typically you do get some response with the first dose. Um, and then you get a, a, what's called a boosting response with the second one. So you'll have a little bit of it with the first one. And 
sometimes people study how much effect you have in that first one. And sometimes they know you're going to need the second one. A, a lot of this, you know, obviously there's experiments done early on to see what the antibody responses are in animals and things like that. So they have some idea of if and historically just how these type of vaccines work, if you're going to have a good response with one or if you need multiple. And, you know, the, these vaccines that are coming out, basically what the FDA said up front and, and a lot of these officials were, if this thing's you know 50% effective, it's already going to have a big effect on you know the pandemic. If it's 70% effective, fantastic. I don't think anyone dreamed of a 95% efficacy rate up front. So I mean those those sort of things are fantastic and make it an even more powerful tool. But um, again, you know some of those expectations, um, like I said, a little bit historical, a little bit of what you're seeing. And the third vaccine that that we kind of got a little more data on today, that's a little further out. Um, is, is not an mRNA vaccine. So it uses a different viral vector, which basically means it uses a virus that's more or less harmless and transmits um, basically some DNA into your cells. And then from there, it does the same thing. Your cells read the DNA, make RNA, make protein to present it to the immune system. And that one, interestingly, also is two doses, but if you use a full dose in the first one and then the second one, they got a lower efficacy uh, around 60%. But if you use a half dose in the first one and then a full dose in the second one, you get around 90%. So that one, again, is looking is, is looking pretty good overall. Um, so the combined efficacy of that whole thing was around, was around 70%. People were like, oh, you know, 70 is a little lower than the 295s. But if it turns out that that first one at the half dose followed by the second one is good, that actually gives you even more doses, right? Because you only have to use half for the first ones. Which just goes to show the kind of situation we're in, how early it is, and how quickly totally. they're moving. They're they're figuring out how to aim the thing. Like uh, totally. they, they've got a gun and they're they're learning how to shoot it on the fly. Absolutely. Well, and then we're learning more about the virus every day, right? So there, there's constantly different things, new things. You know, you have these kind of syndromes that you might get after it. You know, COVID brain, COVID syndrome, whatever you want to call it. All these different effects that we don't know about, but even the immune system itself, right? So we want a good immune response so we can stop this virus. But really a lot of the complications from the disease come from an overactive immune response. So if you get super sick and you have, there's different theories. Some people think it's these cytokine storms or whatever it is, but you can tamp down the immune system with things like steroids once you get super sick and that actually helps people. So, you know, all of this stuff is, not only is this a new virus itself, but just the immune system, the complexity of biology in a person is still something that we're, it's not like we know everything about it. It's not a computer. We, we really, um, <laughs> you know, are learning, are learning all the time. And like I said, you know, anytime, the, the further along we get, the more we're going to know, right? So you're all always kind of in the best place to do it wherever you are. But the technology we have now is just, you know, it's, it really is at a point where we can make a difference in a short time, I guess. Um, so when you said something about 50% efficacious, mm -hmm. um, is that similar to like the annual flu vaccine? Yeah. So the flu vaccine actually has a lot of variability, you know, in bad years, it can only be 20 or 30%. And then good years, it could be maybe be 70 or 80, but, but typically we think of it around 50%. But even in that case, you know, and, and a lot of times you'll hear people say, Oh, you know, some X disease is only like the flu. The flu is a terrible disease. You know, it kills millions of people every year. It's very, basically terrible when you do have it. Um, you know, it, it just causes a lot of problems in, in your life and you don't feel very good. Um, so a lot of vaccines too, uh, flu vaccine being one of them, even if you get the disease, it can be a lot less severe form of the disease. And the same thing looks true in these um, coronavirus vaccines where the people that are getting the disease are not getting very severe forms of the disease. So I know in some of the studies, anybody that had the vaccine and still got the disease um, were not 
not hospitalized. They didn't have any deaths. So they were, you know, even when they got it, it was a much less severe form. So it doesn't even have to completely prevent you from getting it. It can still be, you know, obviously life changing and health changing just to have a less severe form of it. So this may be a dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, so as we're learning about the after effects of having COVID, is there any possibility that you could have after effects or similar after effects from a vaccine? Yeah, it's, it's very unlikely. You know, a lot of the reason we do these studies is the safety aspect of it, right? So, I mean, you do have to, you want to get an efficacious immune response, but it has to be safe. And that's one of the things, you know, obviously we want this thing out there fast too, <laughs> but one of the big reasons to have a bigger trial, like a phase three trial where you see these, you know, 30, 40,000 people in the trial is to catch the more rare events. And actually this vaccine that I mentioned today, it's from uh, AstraZeneca and a group in Oxford, it actually had been paused. They had a pause in Europe and there was a pause in the U.S. for some side effects. And they reviewed the data. They saw what it was and they found out that it was safe. And even though it was a rare event, it was enough to pause the trial. So you can get some adverse events. The adverse events that you're talking about that come from the COVID itself um, is nearly, I mean, I, I would, I don't want to ever say anything's impossible, but it, it's basically impossible because you're not getting infected by the virus here. You might have a different side effect from one of the components of the vaccine or whatever it is, but um, you, you're not likely to get any of the effects from the disease because you can't really get the disease from just a component of the virus. It's just like when you have, a, say, a killed virus or something, this is just a piece of it. So you, you really can't get that same disease from it. Okay. No, that that's useful. Um, because a lot of the, a lot of our experience with vaccines are like the flu vaccine and people are like, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, I get sick every time. And then when I, when I do take it, then I get the flu anyway. And, and there are all these anecdotes, um, obviously yep. the, the real data. Um, and I've never had anybody where I could ask these questions. So it's, yeah, it's yeah, no, don't worry. I mean, and again, if you have it, someone else has it. None of these, they, they seriously are not dumb questions. I know people like to say that, but they, they are legitimate questions. So just on the personal side, uh, I've taken for granted the fact that like, I've got people like you and some, some other medical doctors in my, in my personal life that you know, I can text every now and again, right. how, how much, how much does your phone get blown up with all, with everything that's going on in the pandemic? Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, it comes in waves. Um, <laughs> it's not all the time. And some people even like, you know, as friends with back in high school or something that, you know, my wife, Jennifer, that, you know, is still, uh, still in touch with, they'll message her and she's like, so what does Josh think of this or what of that? And it's, it's, it's here and there, you know, it's a lot of times it's just when you bump into someone and they're like, Oh, well, you know, I forgot you do this. What do you think about this thing? So I wouldn't say it's super overwhelming, but you know, even random things come up though, you know, to, to tie it back to sports. And, and, you know, you say this is a sports podcast and this isn't really sports, but you see what sports are right now, right? There's no one in stadiums, events are being canceled. And the, the quicker we have, vaccines or other public health methods to tamp this thing down, the quicker you get back to normal. But, you know, interestingly, I was on Twitter, I don't even know, it was six months ago, whatever it was. It was early on, just some random thing I was looking through and I found this person's page that I started following because I mean, it was just a fantastic social group. It was someone that was supporting women's wrestling. If you know, wrestling is a very male dominated sport. There's not a lot of it, but she was a high level wrestler, went through the army and I was like, oh, this is a fantastic organization, cool person, started following it get this random message a few days later. Oh, I see, you know, a lot about virology, this and that. I'm like, okay. She, and she starts messaging and it turns out she was working with the National Wrestling Coaches Association, looking for people that could advise them on, you know, virology, on the, the medical aspects. And they had a lot of MDs and stuff. They have, you know, a lot of PhD virologists. It turns out there's not as many as, as, many as us, um, of us as you think. But uh, 
So I got hooked up with them and I was, you know, helping with them. Like anything I can do to give back to your community, you're doing awesome stuff. I grew up wrestling. Like, so there are ties in all this stuff. It might not seem obvious, but like you said, personal ties, uh, other ties to sports or whatever it is, there's always kind of communities that overlap that you fit into. So how much practical knowledge do you think that you've been, you have from your studies just in terms of, of dealing with everyday life in, in a pandemic? Yeah. So, you know, I think you get, you get a big appreciation for, um, for infectious disease, for the precautions you have to take, whether it's hand washing, PPE, you know, just getting a, getting a lab coat on and wearing a mask, wearing gloves, whatever you need to do, goggles, if it's a splash, like a little bit, you take that for granted, right? It's, it's not, that's not a big deal to me to have to do that. Like it's, it's not that big a departure. I understand I don't do it regularly in, in most of my areas of my life, but I also understand when there's something out there, it's just, you know, I do it. I know why I do it. I, I almost, you know, I don't want to say I don't question it because you don't want to do it if you don't have to, but I understand why you do it. So, um, that sort of thing, I think just, uh, you know, <laughs> I was in an animal diagnostics lab for a while when I was an undergrad and it was one of those things that you, you learned early on, you wash your hands on the way into the bathroom and on the way out. <laughs> So I think um, there are a lot of those aspects. You, to some extent, you can't overthink it because there are things everywhere and sometimes they're not harmful. But I think you do have an appreciation when something like this comes along that it is serious. There are people that, you know, you say, yeah, I'm a relative expert to you, right? I know some stuff about this stuff. I know half a percent of what Tony Fauci knows. So I still look to experts like that. And I know that, you know, when I see someone like that that's been studying their whole career, they've been through other pandemics, they've been through other public health crises, like, that's who I look to. And when I see someone that's credible, that that's done all this stuff, I know that I can kind of trust that information. So even there's always grading levels of experts, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and that's, that's just one of the things that I think is kind of propagated through this pandemic for everybody. And, and I'm, I'm curious for you too, being, uh -huh. being an expert, one, one of the things that's been most jarring for me in the pandemic is it's the first time in my adult life or recent adult life where I've gone through and I've thought about decisions and I've worked really hard and I've thought really hard and I came out and I made a decision, whatever it was, whether it was about going to a store or with schools or whatever the decision was. Mm -hmm. I, b before this, I was used to feeling good about my decision-making process and feeling good about the decision that I made. I, I woke up, you know, probably a couple months ago and I was like, you know what? I haven't really felt good about any decision I've made in the last six or eight months. Is that, is that any different for you with your expertise? Oh no, I, I'd say maybe I'm more accustomed to that. I think especially when you do a PhD, maybe more than other things, um, you're working at the fringes of knowledge. You're, you're, if you've ever seen some of these um, little cartoons that show, you know, you're in the center of sphere of knowledge and you keep getting out now and you're, you're making this little like kind of bubble on the very edge of the sphere. So you get used to making decisions with limited information, making the best decision you have and kind of going with that and maybe adjusting on the fly. So I think to some extent, maybe I was a little used to it, but certainly, I mean, it, the one thing I think you have to understand with that too is you, you can't beat yourself up if something does happen. You can do everything right. You can do make the best decisions that anybody could have made with the information you had and stuff still happens. So, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult for one. Um, it, you, you almost can't make the right decision all the time, right? You, you make the best one you can, but certainly even if you make all the best ones, stuff can still happen. And it's just like when they talk about public health, about all the different things you do, like not just being outside or distancing or masking or vaccines or anything. It takes like the whole collective to give you the best odds in that direction. So, and even then it's not hundred percent, right? So. 
Well, and that's one of the one of the interesting things that they talk about in terms of prevention, whether it's hand washing and or masks or whatever mm -hmm. else, is that you know each each layer of protection is like a, a piece, the piece of Swiss cheese, yeah. and the more yeah. you layer the pieces of Swiss cheese, how does that relate to multiple candidates in vaccines? If we yeah. if we roll out all four of these or mm -hmm. three of them, yep. Um, what is what does that do to the landscape, uh, if anything? No, I think it's. It, it, I think it was a little bit always part of a plan. Um, I don't know if you know people who aren't in this world do think that you know, oh, whichever one gets it, either out there first or it's going to be best, whatever is going to kind of win the race and be the one out there. Especially when you're in a time crunch like this, that's never the case. So you know, even if all three of these vaccines and more, there's, I want to say the thing I saw today said there were you know close to ninety candidates out there. Well, um, the and Johnson and Johnson one purports to be a single dose. Yeah, well, and that's the other thing too, right? So right now, the important thing is to get things out there as effective and fast, right? And if we're looking at, it's also going to be prioritized. So if we need to treat healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers first, and we need to treat, you know, care workers in elderly homes and elderly people themselves and things like that, you want to get as much out there as quickly as you can. And again, you know, if you're looking at places like hospitals, big research centers, they probably have a minus 80 freeze where they can store this stuff in. So a little bit of that works into it. But even just the number of doses, you know, if they if these things get approved and I just saw today that the first one, Pfizer one, maybe may be in use by, you know, early to mid-December, essentially in the U.S., um, still you might have 10 million doses or something in the, out of the 330 million people just in the U.S., that's not counting the billions of people worldwide. So I think supply is one thing early on. Um, you know, we don't really know how long these are going to work. So coronaviruses themselves, typically, if you get immune, and we've already seen this in the pandemic itself, where people have got reinfected. So there's no guarantee this is lifelong. We don't know how long it'll last. The first ones don't mean they're going to be the best ones. You know, even if they're 95% efficacious now, you know, maybe someone else does come along with one that has a little bit more of a response. So I don't know if you've seen some of the things they talk about these antibody responses, these T cell responses. So some of them were effective at different times. Some of them last longer. You might have a better memory response. It's things we don't have to get into, but there's a lot of complexity in this is the, is the takeaway. So no, absolutely. You want to have as many shots on goal as possible. They do have to be safe. They do have to be, you know, efficacious to, to some level to, to be useful. And like you said, you know, if someone can come up with one that's a single shot, that's huge. So even right now, you know, one of the high priority um, basically groups of people is military and especially their like higher up leadership and strategic positions and things like that. But, one of the, you know, if they're in one place now and they're going to be halfway across the world in two months, three months, whatever that particular, um, you know, course is, are you going to be able to get them another one? So if you can have one one course of it that's effective or there are some people developing ones that are effective against multiple coronaviruses. So one of the reasons this Oxford one was able to come up so quickly, even though it's not an mRNA vaccine, is because they were already working on coronavirus vaccines. The first SARS uh, it wasn't really a pandemic, but the first SARS outbreak, another one called MERS that also is very, it's Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, another very serious disease. So there were other coronaviruses. But once they got that sequence quickly, they could adapt this vaccine to that. So you know, if that one, for whatever reason, gives another immune response and that one, the advantage there is that one can be stored in the refrigerator for a long time, can be shipped long, long distances. It's very cheap and um, they pledge to offer it at cost. Um, one of the things I was reading was saying that um, most Americans shouldn't have to pay for this, that the government's offered to pay for that. But again, you know, if it's 15, $15 a dose times 330 million people versus $3 a dose, obviously that's a huge difference for people. So there's all these factors, but absolutely the more opportunities we have and the, the more that get out there, the, you know, 
the best ones will work their way to the top. So the, this was one of the one of the questions that Nate Silver asked on Twitter mm-hmm. today, just kind of into the world. Wow. Um, could these interfere with each other? You know, I, I don't want to say no, they shouldn't. Um, I, I don't really see any kind of downside. You never, you never give any definitive answers like that. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, this is another thing you learn in science. <laughs> the, the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> Um, I don't really know of any reason they, sh- they should interfere with one another. You know, if you took a dose from Pfizer and then the second dose came from Moderna or something crazy like that, you shouldn't do anyway, maybe. But um, there's really no reason. I, I mean, I don't know what specifically he's asking about. But, you know, if you're getting protection for one group of people and the other people are getting a different form of protection, anything that's tamping down virus transmission is positive. So, I don't really so see his any. his question was: If some are more efficacious than others, mm-hmm. if if one's highly effective and some are moderately effective, yeah. are there immunological issues with initially giving some people the moderately effective vaccine okay. and then also the highly effective one later? Sure. So, I mean, there could be, but again, I, I you know, not nothing that I know of. You'd have to test them essentially. So, this is the thing, you know, when people talk about how many vaccines people take and the schedule you take. So anytime you want to put a new vaccine into a schedule, you actually have to test it in that schedule and show that, you know, it's going to work with it, with those other constraints. Unless you test it, you can't really say that here. Um, I don't really see why unless it, um, you know, if you have too quick a reaction to the second vaccine, maybe it knocks everything out before you can get the proper immune response. So, I mean, you know, again, all these things are theoretical. Even, you know, the one I mentioned today that, if you give a full dose and a full dose is less effective than giving a half than a full, there's a handful of ideas out there of why that might be, but nobody really knows. Um, and we don't even know if it's real yet, right? You know, you, maybe you need to test it on more people and that won't bear out. So it's anything's possible essentially, but I, I, I really kind of don't expect it. And honestly, the, you know, one of the biggest things, obviously you want to protect every individual, but the biggest thing in something like this is to knock down the spread through the community. So it's, it's one of the reasons, you know, initially, if you get a place like, say, New Zealand, right, they knock their numbers down very quickly and they can more or less function normally. Now, every time they even have, even have a blip of it, they jump on it to keep that under control. But if you keep that under control, you don't get situations where your you know, hospital systems are overwhelmed or things like that. So really, if you can knock down the transmission, it almost doesn't have to be perfect in everyone. Yeah, well, and, and to your point, like the idea that they're going to test, nobody's, nobody's out there trying to test the, the Pfizer with the AstraZeneca, like. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, and maybe, you know, if, if it wears off over time and we see that people are vulnerable again, you know, maybe you can do that. So, and there is some, there's study of that on flu vaccines, right? Because we get those every year. And, you know, it's it's still essentially better to get it every year. There's, there's a little bit of data that maybe if you, you know, had it one year and you missed a year and then that third year, you were better off if you hadn't had it the second, but it's all, they're all really close and it's almost kind of nitpicky stuff. No one's ever definitively proven that. And still your best bet is to get it every year. <laughs> so yeah, I think that I, I have a feeling unless I saw data otherwise that I would think that would be the case here too. If we know it wanes over a certain period of time that the next time you get the next one, you're going to be essentially, you know, at whatever efficacy that vaccine was providing and the other one shouldn't change too much again. <laughs> So, so maybe you're too smart to get involved in yeah. these types of debates, but do you, do you have anybody that you, that you talk to or who's come at you who like just doesn't believe a word you're saying and questions your expertise and yeah. knowledge, you know, b- because 
this has been like culturally, it's sure. almost been, it's been almost as interesting as it has been scientifically. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's, you know, when I first started getting into this medical affairs world, a lot of it was when the whole anti-vaccine movement was coming up and it's, it's a very similar thought process, right? It's a little bit of the death of expertise and all these sort of things. But to me, the social psychology behind it is super fascinating. Uh, although it's frustrating at the same time. And again, in just in some of this vaccine research, just talking about the, these communities that are getting ravaged by it and just, you know, completely denying that's what's doing it. It has to be something else. And, you know, I, I a little bit don't get that because I do get the evidence. Like, you know, I, you can literally isolate this virus and take pictures of it in the right kind of microscope. You can see it, you know, we can put it on cells and show what it does. You can do animal studies, protect from it with a vaccine. Like this stuff's out there. So you know, because I understand it, that I don't get that thought process, but I also understand that thought process exists. And, you know, I, I'm certainly not immune to it in another realm of science or something, you know, if someone has, I see something that sounds feasible and I look at it and I'm like, oh, well, maybe it is, maybe that is right. And the thing I always fall back to is like, because I'm comfortable in this field and I see what the experts say and I, I know them and trust them and often do legitimately know these people, work with them, whatever. Um, when I go into another field, I'm like, I'm the person coming in. That's not the expert. <laughs> so I kind of defer to them and know that they've studied this their whole life. They know it. Um, so in that realm, I, I, you know, I kind of don't understand that the social psychology, like I said, is super fascinating to me and just the, the way those ideas travel and stuff. But at the same time, um, I, I guess I haven't really had a lot of people push, push me directly on the, you know, the virus itself. That's, it's more of the social aspects again of the, you know, they can't tell me what to do. I'm going to live this way. I'm going to do that. And, and, you know, I get it. I, it. It's your, to some extent, it's your right to do certain things. And then there are certain public health things we have to do and things like that. I can't go out and be a drunk driver just because I don't think it's, you know, the, the wrong thing to do or whatever. So, um, yeah, no, it's, I, I see it more on a group level though. Again, I, you know, maybe it's just that I don't surround myself with a lot of people who think that way <laughs> and that kind of self-selects. I think by the time you get our age and everything, it's uh, <laughs> a little less and less tolerance for that all the time. I respect your opinion, but I don't have to put up with it all the time. <laughs> I have to listen to my kids whine, but I don't have to listen to you talk about this. Dude, don't, so don't. don't get into sports blogging or sports podcasting. Okay. <laughs> for sure. All right. So last but not least, um, and I, I appreciate your time and we, oh, we've gone about, gone about 30 minutes here. Um, if, if you were going to recommend maybe a couple of experts or a couple of websites or mm -hmm. like where, and, and maybe not the super, super technical stuff that most people can't understand, sure. where, where would you recommend kind of people pay attention? Yeah. So like I said, you know, Fauci's man, he, <laughs> He really does like he knows all this stuff he explains it well it's a shame i think when this first started we had a fantastic expert in ohio with amy acton i think she did a great job of explaining what it was why we were taking certain precautions um you know a little bit you have to poke around a little bit unfortunately um there are some good aggregates you know you can google covid vaccine and there's a big New York Times page. It'll tell you if you want to dig into every one of them, it'll tell you everything about every vaccine. But it'll also give you a summary of what the technologies are, of what is an mRNA vaccine, what is a, um, you know, an adenovirus vaccine, which is the, the one that's um, Oxford and AZ are doing. So, I, you know, I look around at places like that. Quite honestly, it's, it's a little harder. I don't want to recommend it as a, as a general source, but Twitter has tons of good information. Tons of good doctors are on there, but the problem there is it's, it's like I said, it's it's easy to find something that sounds reasonable that might be completely out of it. So 
I tend to trust people like, again, Fauci. Um, it, I would want to say health agencies, but they've been hit and miss lately. <laughs> they get caught up in, and honestly, a lot of this stuff, too, and even the speed of getting a vaccine out, you know, it comes down to companies and politics and complicated logistics systems. So it's not as straightforward as, as I kind of want it to be. Um, no, and, and we've, we've and, talked a lot about that, you know, just in terms of, um, you know, how just how strange it was that every local school district basically was on their own to come up with their own plan. And like, I just, I, I wasn't critical of them. I just felt sorry for them because it yeah. felt like, you know, they, they were just, they were, they were forced to make it up as they went along. And who's trained for that at a school district level? I mean, <laughs> again, our superintendent in our district won superintendent of the year this year, but what trainings he had and how to handle a pandemic. Quite honestly, even you and, and he relies on the board of health around here and, you know, running a county board of health. How much training do you have to handle a pandemic on this level? Like, especially we border, you know, two counties, obviously, and one has a lot more resources than the other. So just the differences in that. It's a it's when a I felt it with with 20 some employees and I, I could only right? imagine, you know, with with uh, over 100 employees and thousands of, of uh, students. It's yeah. just. It's, it was an impossible task, and, and I felt sorry for them that they were forced forced to do it. Yeah. I'm not sure what the, the right solution was, if there should have been an education czar for the state of Ohio, like making that choice, or maybe northern Ohio. I don't know. Well, that's um, it. It's, it's such a difficult thing, and, you know, it's it, to some extent, it would be nice to have, again, cohesive national, CDC, NIH, whoever it is, that leadership. But our country's so big that, they, that the – one blanket isn't going to do that. Like you yeah, and what works, really what works for New York isn't going to work for Alabama, and we both know it. And and from here to Cincinnati, we're in the same state, and how far? You know, it can be a world of difference in, in an infectious disease. So it's it's a difficult thing, and you can't expect a, a, a Fauci level person or even a two levels below that in every city and every county. It's just a it's a super difficult thing to do, and you're doing it on the fly as people are getting infected. You know, as <laughs> quarter million people in our country die. It's, it's, you know, time is of the essence, but how do you make that right decision? Well, this, this was awesome. I really appreciate it. You, uh, you helped us make a bunch of sense out of this stuff. Yeah, nice. Good. I'm glad it's useful. All right. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. For those who are listening on the podcast, again, we're part of the evergreen podcast network. This has been the waiting for next year.com podcast. We'll check you next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.